listening to the Bible 126 show. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well, we are in our seventh session of the book of Judges. And I have to tell you, uh, this book is in my Bible reading. I've read it many times and thought I had a you know, rough grasp of it. But, you know, it isn't until you really dig in to these books, you rediscover them. And I have to tell you that uh, each one of these sessions uh, is full of surprises for me. And I've studied the Bible for literally, what, 50 years, more than 40, taught it for more than 30. Um, and yet every time you go through, there's new discoveries. And uh, that's what you'd expect if it's the Word of God. You'd expect it to be infinitely deep. You'd never master it, no matter how many times you go through, you know. Well, we're going to jump into Judges chapter 10 and 11. And, but I want to remind you of uh, some very special scriptures. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's quite a statement. All scripture, not most scripture, not the main scriptures, not just this, uh, not just the New Testament, all scripture. Another verse that we often quote, I didn't make up a slide for it, but is uh, Romans 15.4. Whatsoever things are written aforetime, were written for our learning. Well, the first couple of verses of this chapter are a challenge. Okay, if we were a class, I'd give you sort of a homework assignment. Let's take a look at uh, Judges chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And after Abimelech, we had Abimelech last time, remember? After Abimelech, there arose to defend Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. <laughs> Can you imagine going through school with those names? Um, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in Mount Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty and three years and died and was buried in Shamir. That's it. That's all we know about this guy, Tola. He arose to defend Israel. We don't know against whom. And he wasn't a local. He was a man of Issachar, but he dwelt in Mount Ephraim. So he's really from another place, so to speak. And he judged 23 years, and he died, and he's buried in Shamir. And I say, what on earth? So if you were given that as a, an assignment to lead a discussion in, where do you go with that? Well, one of the things you do is let's find out what these words mean. The first thing you discover is that the tola in Hebrew is the word for worm. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going through school with a name like worm? Hey, worm, you're on our team. You know, doesn't really work, does it? Now, his dad was Pua, which means splendid. And his grandfather was Dodo. Now, in our, in our language, that might mean something else, but uh, in the Hebrew, it's uh, a way of speaking of the beloved one. So you say, well, gee, that sounds wonderful, Chuck. Where are you going with that? Well, I want you to remember Psalm 22. In your Old Testament, one of its pinnacles, one of its high points is Psalm 22, which is written as if, it was dictated by Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. No, it was penned by David some seven, eight hundred years earlier. But uh, you, you all recall Jesus himself called attention to his first verse. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? By the way, when Jesus quoted that on the cross, it was the only time in eternity that he didn't call him Father. Before then and since then, it's always Father. It's the one time he said, my God, my God. Only time he called him that way. Why? He was in our shoes. He was in our shoes. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? My, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. In the night season am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. And it continues. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. Then he says a very strange thing. I'm a worm and no man. Really? What on earth does that mean? I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despise of the people. All that see me laugh me to scorn. 
They shoot out the lip and they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord, he should deliver him. Let him deliver him. Seeing he delighted in it. And then the psalm goes on and describes such detail of his experience hanging on the cross that there have been articles in the American Medical Association Journal detailing the cause of death from the medical inferences that one can draw, especially from the psalm. But I'm a worm, no man. I wonder what this Tola thing is all about. Tola's name means worm. And uh, Pua means splendid. Dodo means the beloved one. So he come, Tola comes from the splendid or the beloved one. Okay. It means worm, but it means something else. If you do a little more digging, you discover the word Tola in the Hebrew doesn't only mean worm. It also means scarlet. Oh, now that's getting more interesting. That's why... The reason it's called scarlet is because that's where they got the dye to make scarlet. It was from a particular worm. What we would call the Kermes vermilio. And it's the family of Coxidae, which is the order Thincota and Hematera, which I know thrills you greatly. But if you look at uh, one of the major encyclopedias, you'll discover that... uh, Oh, a little background, a little more background. What this worm does, it attaches itself to an oak tree, and the female lays its eggs and dies. The body stays there. When the larvae hatch, they eat the body, for starters, and it becomes a red spot on the tree. After three days, it dries to a white and flakes off. Is the fog lifting a little here, gang? Okay. See, we have one that left his home, his splendid one and so forth, came to another place to defend us, right? And it's interesting, when we look at Isaiah 118, he says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as what? Scarlet. They shall be white as snow, and if they shall be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I think that's kind of fun. I'm a worm and no man. He was, on a, he was also on a tree, tree of Calvary, and of course shed his blood that you and I could be what? Born again. And... Uh, Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, take my body and eat. This is my body given for you, and so forth. Take, eat, and so on. We also, you see, have an accuser and need defense. Who's our accuser? Revelation 12.10, right? Accuser is who? That's what the word means. The word Satan means accuser. He has many titles. But the accuser, Satan, is one of them. We need Who's our defense counsel? Our worm, who shed his blood, that we might live. Uh, my children, these things I write unto you that we sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's the propitiation of our sins, not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. There's another thing. He was bo- After he died, where did he get buried? Where did he live and then where did he get buried? A place called Shamir. What does Shamir mean? Thorn. Thorn. That's kind of fun. Now, you know, a skeptic will make nothing of it. It's all coincidence. But the rabbis have a very quaint expression. They say coincidence is not a kosher word. Okay. I love this little opening uh, because it demonstrates our, uh, a broader premise that our ministry is based on. And that is that every detail, every detail is in the Scripture by deliberate design. Not just the themes and not just the place names. Every letter, not one yacht or one tittle, even the parts of a letter, Jesus says, will be fulfilled. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. So I think that's kind of fun. But in any case, we're going to move on now. After him arose Jair, who was a Gileadite, and judged Israel some twenty and two years. Now, Jair was from the tribes east of the Jordan, from the area known as Gilead. We'll get into a map uh, shortly that will lay some of these things out. In the broadest sense, Gilead is the whole area east of the Jordan that was given to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. But in a narrower sense, Gilead uh, was bounded on the north by Bashan, remember Og, the king of Bashan, and on the south by Meshur, the plain of Medeba, which lay between the valley of Heshbon and the river Arnon. We'll show you this on the map in a minute. And so it, uh, it excludes some of the part of the territory that was given to Reuben and so on. Now, Yair actually means he enlightens. And the name was given to a descendant of Manasseh who conquered 60 towns, during the time of the conquest under Joshua, but he's also a judge for 22 years in Israel, another Jair. The Greek form of Jair 
is Jairus. Remember the ruler of the synagogue in Mark 5 and in Luke 8? That was Jairus. That's the Greek form of this name, Jair. And uh, now Jair was a Gileadite. He judged Israel for 20 and 2 years. 30 sons that rode on 30 ass colts. And they had 30 cities, which are called Havoth uh, Jair unto this day, which are in the land of Gilead. Havoth Jair really means that they're the tent villages of Jair. They're a group of towns in Bashan that were named actually by an earlier Jair, if you try to unsort it from Numbers 32 and Deuteronomy 3 and so on. But anyway, in any case, this guy, uh, whether he's a namesake or whatever, is obviously quite wealthy because he has uh, provided his, each of his children with their personal donkeys, which was a, a luxury. That was the uh, privileged form of transportation. And each one apparently also had a city. Now, the word ear in the plural uh, is cities, towns, uh, or just villages, places that were guarded is where the term comes from. The Hebrew word for ascolts is a'ir. It's, it's spelled exactly the same way in the Hebrew, except the, the vowels are inferred differently. It's pointed slightly differently. So it's a play on words. The word for cities and ascolts is a deliberate play on words. This style of the writer in the book of Judges shows up several places. We already experienced it. I didn't get into the details, but when we had Jotham's fable back in chapter 9, remember the trees and all that when he was dealing with Abimelech and all that. And also we're going to incur in, in chapter 14, Samson will do a riddle that's very key in the story there. But again, hidden in the Hebrew is a play on words. The, guy, the writer is indulging that right here. But in any case, uh, uh, Jair also died and he's buried in Kaman. Now, thanks to the leadership of Tola and Jair, Israel had enjoyed 45 years of peace and prosperity. I think we all understand the book of Judges is a decay. It's, 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 things are going from bad to worse because there's no king. Everyone did what's... Remember, there's four characteristics of the book of Judges. The first is that there was no king in Israel. Secondly, everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Every, again and again, this repeated phrase. In fact, it closes the, the last phrase in the whole book. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is an indictment. And the third thing was the word of God was disparaged. And the fourth thing, they were constantly in bondage. What's interesting about the book of Judges, which startles me to realize how valid it is, is it's prophetic of today. And we're going to see some things in chapter 10 that will startle you as to just how prophetic it is of today. But what do we have today? There's no king in Israel. There is a king coming, but he's not in there yet. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Relative, value relativism is the mood of the land. Everybody, you, you got your truth, I've got mine. The word of God is disparaged. You see stuff on television, you just you can't believe. Incompetence masquerading as experts. Men who just don't even know what they're talking about. Quite apart from their doctrinal issues. And of course, bondage everywhere whether it's to drugs or whatever. So it's going to be interesting. Now, what is interesting, and of course we just see a dismal pattern here, but what we find, especially uh, in this chapter 2, that what uh, Hegel said is correct. History teaches us that man learns nothing from history. Israel goes through the same pattern over and over again. Someone will deliver them, everything's great, and they turn back to idolatry, and these pockets of people that they were supposed to have been dealing with, they didn't, have now become their oppressors. And they get into oppression, and they finally repent and ask God to help them, and God will raise up a deliverer. Most of these guys are somewhat local guys. They don't have national integrity yet. It's just region by region. They'll uh, raise up a local deliverer, whether it's Gideon or whoever, and, and, and uh, they have an incredible victory. And then as soon as the victory sort of settle down, they haven't learned. So we go on with Judges chapter 10, verse 6. Just before I go on to... Ingratitude is a terrible thing. The people had no concept or no enduring concept that God was their source of peace. Comfortable living produces weak character. It's a pattern all, all throughout the world. Thanksgiving glorifies God. You know, that's why some rabbis, some Jewish believers, pray after the meal. They give thanks for the meal, having had the meal. You know, that's what we like. We, we do it before, most of us. But it's interesting, many do it both. But doing a prayer after the meal is a, another strong defense against selfishness and idolatry. Now what's strange, if Israel had just reviewed their own history, 
uh, and learned from it, their future would have been very different. If they had learned from their history, their future would be different. And that's true today. They really understood their history. Now, from the time of Athenael, which we started with, and to the days of Gideon, they endured over 50 painful years of oppression from their enemies. See, by now they should have learned that their blessings come from a response to obedience, in obedience, I should say, as a response to their rebellion. Now, as we look at this and as we watch Israel and say, my goodness, can't they, don't they ever learn? We should look at the mirror. We should look in the mirror. The Lord had given them victory over seven different nations. We're going to see that in verses 11 and 12 here coming up. But now they're worshiping six, seven different varieties of pagan gods we'll see in, the, in, the, in verse 6 here. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served not him. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the children of Ammon. You know, it's astonishing to me to watch people who claim to be agnostics. They're too intellectual to accept the Bible. Watch them, and watch what they do take up. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. We'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, by the way, you'll see in verse 7 here, the Lord is hot against them and sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the children of Ammon. The rest of this chapter is going to focus on their problems with the Ammonites, which are basically east of the Jordan. And that's what we're going to deal with. And we'll go through this chapter 11 and 12 and whatever with Jephthah. What follows chapters 13 through 16 is Samson. And Samson will deal with the Philistines in the west. So we've got the Ammonites in the east, Philistines to the west. Now, if you want to take a, just a quick look at a map, this is a area, this is a satellite view in effect of, of uh, Israel. Ammon is that region that's between the Jabbok River and the Arnon River. The Jabbok is recall, you may recall, is where Jacob wrestled and all that sort of thing. Amman is located in this region even to this day to give you a feeling for that. On the west of the Philistines, a place where we presently associate it with the Gaza Strip, roughly. And, of course, Moab is south of Ammon and Edom south of Moab. All of these are typically east of the, the Jordan Valley. Amalek is to the south of Israel. You re- read about these as their enemies. Up along the coast, uh, just uh, north of Israel, on the coast are the Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon and so forth. Uh, east of Israel, we have Aram, the Arameans. Today, you'd call them Syria, Syrians. To give you a rough idea where the present boundaries of Israel, I throw that on the map just to give you a flavor of the whole thing. We're going to deal mostly with issues that tonight of east of the Jordan, with our, the conflict with the Ammonites and uh, Moab and so forth. Now, these pagan gods you keep running into go by all different kinds of names. We always hear of Baal, or Baal, and uh, the, the, this was worshipped by Canaan, Arameans, the, the Syrians, if you will, and Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon, and so on, and Asherah and Ashtoreth, same group of people. Athtart and Astarte is Ashtoreth, but by the Syrians or the Arameans. Ishtar is the Babylonian name for the same idol, in effect. And Ishtar, of course, is from which we get Easter, if you will, and the worship of Ishtar. Hadad and Rimmon are Aram, that's the Arameans' name for Baal, in effect. Hadad and Hadad are Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a label meaning between the rivers, meaning the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's further, obviously, quite a bit to the east and northeast. Chemosh was the god of Moab. And uh, Molech spelled several different ways the god of the Ammonites. And uh, Dagon is the god of the Philistines. We'll encounter him when we get to Samson in a few chapters. And Resif again, the Arameans. So that's a quick rundown of these pagan gods. Now we're going to constantly hear about the Ammonites. The Ammonites are a nation that sprung from Abraham's nephew Lot's younger daughter, the incest that occurred. End of Genesis 19. It's also mentioned in Psalm 83. That was the, the offspring from the incest with the younger daughter when he was drunk and so forth. Moab uh, is the offspring of his elder daughter. So Ammon and Moab have a pretty dismal beginning. They often appear together. They are both apparently hired Balaam. When you get to, when you get into Deuteronomy 13 and Numbers 22 and so forth, they have this business with Balaam. It's usually associated with Moab, but they were both involved, it turns out. And uh, the, the land from the Arnon River to Jabbok is assigned to both of them originally, Judges 11, uh, 12 through 18. We'll see that. 
And Moab is probably the more civilized of the two. Ammon destroyed the original Zamzumim. The Zamzumim were one of the four tribes that were Nephilim, these these hybrid offsprings that that uh, the kind of thing that led to the flood of Noah and so forth. We they strangely show up even after the flood. And this is uh, the Ammonites wiped out the Zamzumim. That's important in Deuteronomy two. Ammon is always apparently fierce, plundering, Bedouin-like, uh, half of the two. And there's all kinds of examples where they uh, threaten to th- thrust out the right eye of all Jabesh Gilead. They they rip up the pregnant women in Gilead, and, and Amos 1 mentions it. They're always uh, treacherously murdering and what have you. And even their future history, we'll find, is, is uh, you know laid out this way. I won't go through all the details here. They did cross the Jordan and seize Jericho, which the right name is Beth Yarah, or the house of the moon god. And uh, when you go future, you go forward in the Bible, you're going to discover not only Jephthah, which we'll see, but also Saul severely punished them. In Jehoshaphat, Ammon joined Moab um, in an expedition for uprooting Judah from its possession. There are constantly tensions between Ammon, Moab, and Israel, but they end up having to give tributes to Uzziah and Jotham. There's constant tensions back and forth. I won't go through all the details here. We'll, we'll encounter them as we go forward in the Scripture. But it's interesting that Nema, which is Solomon's wife, the mother of Rehoboam, was an Ammonite, interestingly enough. Remember, Solomon's getting in big trouble. He's, he, he gets in his, in his late years, he went apostate. And their idol is Moloch. This is the idol that they heated virtually red hot and put uh, children in the arms of the thing. It was a form of uh, infant uh, offerings. And it was Solomon's Ammonite wives that uh, seduced him to rear an altar in the temple itself to his own hurt. It's interesting, you'll incur, if you study this, you'll discover the word Nakash is a common name for their kings. King Nachash of the Ammonites. The word Nachash in the Hebrew means serpent. So there's more going on behind the scenes here, but we'll just move on. Let's pick it up about verse 8. And that year they, the Ammonites, vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years. All the children of Israel were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Gilead is a general term for east of the Jordan, up behind the Sea of Galilee in that region, below Bashan, but above, above the Ammonite area. And moreover, the children of Israel passed over the Jordan, that is to the west side, to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, now they're down in the south, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was sore distressed. Now, uh, I might mention a couple of other things here. It may be at this time that the king of Ammon may also have been the king of the Moabites. There's some evidences to indicate that they were joined, in effect, at this time. These are tribal things. The, the lines are not clearly drawn for most of us. Finally, after 18 years of this oppression, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served idols. Well, I love what the, <laughs> what the Lord uh, does here. He says, The Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, this is way back, and the children of Ammon and from the Philistines and the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Manites did oppress you? And you cried to me, and I delivered you out of their, their hand. Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. That must have been a great message. That must have shook them up. You'd think so, at least not right now. The Lord's pulling their chain, so to speak. He says, go and cry to the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. <laughs> and uh, see, he, he delivered him from the Egyptians, of course, in the Exodus. We all know about that. In Numbers 21, he delivered him from the Amorites, the predecessors of these guys. And then he delivered him from the children of Ammon and, and Moabites under Ehud. That was in the chapter 3 of the book of Judges, you may recall. He delivered them from the Philistines back there in chapter 3 also. And the Sidonians, they, those are the northern uh, Canaanites, if you will, uh, under Jabin, the king of Canaan. The Amalekites, who were who in alliance with the Moabites back in chapter 3. The Canaanites in chapter 4. And the Midianites in chapter 6. The Maonites, that strange term is probably the Midianites. And uh, that was our subject in chapters 6, 7, and 8, as you may recall. So, so the Lord had given them victory over seven different nations, and now they're worshiping seven different idols. It's bizarre that they would be worshiping the gods of the nations that you know they had defeated. It's, it's, it's strange. And... Uh, it says, go and cry to the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. See, the greatest judgment that uh, God can uh, send His people often is just to let them have their own way. And to don't interfere. You know, it's interesting, all through the book of Romans, chapter 1, 
Wherefore God gave them up to all these abortive things. God gave them up. God gave them over. That's a repetitive phrase in those very precious chapters in uh, the book of Romans, chapter 1, as it deals with paganism. God gives them up, lets them go at it. But, of course, this will be too much for Israel. So the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned, do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord and his, that is the Lord's, and his soul. Whose soul? Lord's soul. Was grieved for the misery of Israel. You know, it's interesting that their hope shifts. Their hope is not in their repenting. Their hope is in the character of God. You know, one of the most uh, critical things for all of us is to think carefully, how do we represent the character of God? See, there are churches that argue that God is through with Israel, that the promises of Israel now are the churches. Well, setting aside the eschatological problems there, the really fundamental issue is they're making God a liar. They may not, may not mean to, but they are, because God has all these promises irrevocably committed in the Old and New Testament about Israel. They ignore those. Paul, In Paul's definitive statement of Christian doctrine called the Book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, hammer this theme. But it's astonishing you know, how many churches teach a, a replacement kind of theology. It's amazing how many churches have no grasp that God is coming back to rule the planet Earth. Over 2,000 references in Scripture to the literal rule of Christ on the planet Earth. Gabriel told Mary that her child is going to have the throne of David. The throne of David didn't exist back in those days and hasn't since. Is that a vague promise? Is God playing games with fine print? No. He says what he means and means what he says. There is a very shocking book that's just come out by Dave Hunt, who is a very gifted researcher. doesn't mean he agrees with everything he says, but he redoes his homework. You think he's been controversial in the past. This book's a dandy. It's called, What Love Is This? Calvinism's misrepresentation of the character of God comes from, it comes at it from a whole another point of view, not the usual, you know, Armenian Calvinist. No, no, is uh, what was it saying about the character of God? And I'm not here to promote the book particularly. I'm just pointing out that that you know the issue that lies behind whether it's replacement theology or amillennialism or this thing is what does it communicate about the character of God? There is a thing in the Scripture called the fear of God. It comes out of our devotional life. And in many other ways, too, it's shocking to realize how many people of the pulpit are guilty of misrepresenting God. And one of my prayers, I don't ever do that. I may be wrong about this, that, and the other thing, and, and I get into technicality, sure, fine, but, but uh, boy, I pray that the Holy Spirit keeps me from misrepresenting His character. We can argue about pre-trib, post these other things, fine, but not misrepresent His character. That's the root issue. Well, what we're getting to here now is uh, the next verse, verse 17, really, in a sense, should almost start a new chapter. Because now they've repented, again, and God is grieved, and the word in the grieve there implies uh, an impatience. So then verse 17, Then the children of Ammon were gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled themselves together and encamped in Mizpah. Now, Mizpah is probably the same Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. The exact location is in somewhat dispute, and I'll show you on the map here shortly. But um, it may have been the place that Laban and Jacob separated, you may recall. And uh, so it's a very famous place. There's a mount there that's important. It's going to be a, a key to us. And, and, uh, and the people and princes of Gilead, now it says the people and the princes. There's no and in the Hebrew. What this really implies, in effect, is the assembly of the chiefs of Gilead. And so apparently after 18 years of oppression, the people are finally prepared to act. But they got a problem. they got an army and no general. They're ready to go. They recognize that you know, they're ready to trust God and they're ready to go and deal with the, the Ammonites. But they need a leader. They need a leader. As an incentive, they promised whoever does lead will end up being the head of, uh, of all of Gilead. And so you can always subtitle this, Where are the Elijahs when you need them? Hmm? Remember Elijah, he, wouldn't, he not only preached, he also slaughtered the 450 priests. I mean, he, was, he, he didn't mess around. Anyway, now it shifts. At chapter 11, first three verses, picks up another theme. There's a guy by the name of Jephthah. He's a Gileadite. 
He was a mighty man of valor. Notice that. This guy is a mighty man of valor. Let's dwell on each of those words. He is, he is mighty and he is strong. He's courageous. But he has a problem. He was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah who went out with him. Jephthah thus is the unwanted brother. In other words, he didn't have a legitimate mother. He was the son of a concubine. And the concubine probably was an Aramean, uh, non-Jewish. And uh, a couple other things. There's some other background here. Uh, if he is the son of the Aramitis that is mentioned in First Chronicles 7, 14, which some people talk about, uh, then he probably was born to Gilead in his old age. Probably he was about 17 when they crossed Canaan and entered the war. Again, in, he was too young to go to war. Canaan, when, when his brothers came back from that war, uh, he had been home because he's the youngest. And that's another reason why he was, he was outcast, rejected by his brothers when they were returning from the wars. But whatever. So here's a guy who apparently has got a lot of skill, but he's got a cloudy birth, if you will. And he fled from his brethren. And we're going to find out hints from subsequent verses that it wasn't just his brethren. The whole township participated in this ostracizing him. So he heads up in the land of Nob. This is about 80 miles to the northeast. It's out of the region of Gilead in the, in the traditional sense. And he gathered around him some, it says, it's translated here, vain men. But uh, the term really means adventurers, reckless persons. And so he was known as a man of valor, we get from verse 1. And so he had no trouble, apparently, gathering a following. So he's a leader of a bunch of brigands. He's a Robin Hood of sorts. There's no implication here that he attacks his own people, but he probably raids Ammonites or whatever as he lives off booty. So this guy is a, a man of the field. So it turns out, it came to pass the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Thub. They knew this guy. Hey, here's the guy we need. He's a gunslinger, man. You know. He's an interesting guy. Be, pay attention to this. Well, he's obviously a rough and ready guy. He's got a very roving lifestyle with these, these uh, characters that have surrounded him. But they're a formidable bunch. But I want you to notice that lifestyle doesn't seem to interfere with a commitment, his personal commitment to the Lord. Strangely enough. Now, we don't know what, his, uh, what limits he had to his understanding, but you'll notice that his, his handling of the situation is very noteworthy with some surprises coming they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? Notice, not just his brothers, the elders. So see, they all apparently have their hands dirty on this one. And why are you come unto me now when you are in distress? <laughs> Good question. The elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. You know, that must have set pretty strange to his brothers. <laughs> Can you imagine how they must have felt? Here's the guy that they threw out of the house that's now being sought to be the head of the nation. You know, this, this has some real dramatic opportunity here to, to lay this out. But Jephthah says unto the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon and the Lord deliver them before me, Shall I be your head? Now this sounds like an inter interrogative in the, in the English translation. There really is not an interrogative in the Hebrew. It's really laying down a condition for his, his support. A condition which they are going to assent to in the next verse. The elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us if we do not so according to thy words. And Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words where? Before the Lord in Mizpah. Now, again, we've looked at this map. And Mizpah, the actual location is uh, debatable among some scholars, but it obviously is in the region, it's part of Gilead, that it's east of the uh, Sea of Galilee. It's not as far north as Aram or Syria. The area of Tob that Jephthah was was probably very close to the border of Syria, there around. 
but it's certainly north of the Brook Jabbok, which is the northern border of the Ammonites, if you will. And for this discussion, the Ammonites and the Moabites are really joined. So that's a quick picture of where all, what all that's about. So, so he's, he's franchised. He's got his mandate, okay? One of the things I want you to understand, I won't leave this till the end, I want you to understand that Jephthah, despite his lifestyle, despite the way you may picture him, he is listed in the book of Hebrews as one of those in the hall of faith. So that's, that colors your perceptions of Jephthah right from day one. You'll notice that his vocabulary and his expressions are very God-centered. So this guy is a, a man of the field. He's a man's man. He's obviously very uh, more than just athletic. And yet he's also a credit to God, as you'll see. I've, as, I, as I think more about this, I can't, I can't help but be amused about how his brothers were taking all of this, you know. Because here the outcast is now numero uno. And he said, okay, he said, now the first thing he does, by the way, he's going to attempt at diplomacy. He's not a hothead looking for a fight. Because he obviously understands the real cost of war. That means people die. So he makes an attempt at an honorable peace. I might mention that that is required by the Torah. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 18, it details this very procedure, that before you go to war, you've got to exhaust your opportunities to try to negotiate. That's the first thing he does. So he sent messengers to the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me, that thou art come against me to fight in my land? Now see, he's moved down, he's back in town, and he's representing his people. The king of the children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land, and when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon, even to the Jabbok, and unto the Jordan, now therefore restore these lands again peaceably. So they're making their demands here, okay? This is exactly the kind of thing that Hitler did in the Sudetenland. Made outrageous demands to return to him a land that, Czech, that never belonged to Germany. And he was able to fly it and had France and Britain, who had been treaty-bound to hold their borders, force Czechoslovakia to yield the Sudetenland, which was just a stratagem because that was their key defense. And as soon as they forced him to do that, of course, within six months, uh, Hitler ran over Czechoslovakia and, you know, the rest goes on. So it's a very interesting pattern to really understand. In our briefing package called The Roots of War, we uh, digress to get into that just to show the pattern of exactly what's going on in the Middle East today using propaganda to accomplish things that military strategy could never accomplish and uh, in a negative sense. And uh, this is the same myth that Hitler used, the same myth they're using here, same myth that the Palestinians are promoting in their quest to exterminate Israel today. But what's interesting, what happens next, is Jephthah has done his homework. He is going to go through the facts of history and it gives you a summary here that is just a perfect study outline to really understand numbers in Deuteronomy. He profiles it. That's their, that's their demand. Let's see what Jephthah does. Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the children of Ammon, said to them, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness unto the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers unto the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land, but the king of Edom would not hearken thereto. In like manner they sent to the king of Moab, and he would not consent. And Israel abode in Kadesh. Then they went along through the wilderness, that's on the east side, if you will, and compassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came by the east side of the land of Moab, and pitched on the other side of Arnon, but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border, that's the river, was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to them, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy land and into my place. But Sihon trusted not Israel to pass through his coast, but Sihon gathered all his people together and pitched in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel and smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. Bring up verse 22. And they possessed all the coasts of the Amorites, from Arnon even to Jabbok. These are Amorites. These are predecessors to the Amorites. Get, understand that. Uh, and from the wilderness even to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Shouldst thou possess it? Wilt not thou possess that which Kamosh, thy God, giveth thee to possess? And that's a strange phrase for him to use 
because Chemosh is the national god of the Moabites, not the Ammonites, which implies they're together, but also he's obviously ineffective in any case. Will thou not possess that which Chemosh thy God giveth thee to possess? For whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them will we possess. And now art thou anything better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel or ever fight against them? See, back there with all the tensions of Balak and Israel, Balak never claimed this land for his. Key point. Did he ever, did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and Eror and her towns, and all the cities that belonged by the coasts of the Arnon, three hundred years. Why therefore did ye not recover them within that time? Three centuries have gone by. You never spoke then. Wherefore I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest me wrong to war against me. The Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. It's interesting, through this whole presentation, Jephthah always emphasizes that it was the Lord that gets the glory for those victories. So from his whole vocabulary and presentation, you can recognize he's a God-honoring person. For those of you that indulge in some special research, I encourage you to borrow or get your hands on a copy of a book by Joan Peters called From Time Immemorial. It's a monumental study of the Palestinian problem. She was very anti-Semitic, a journalist, researched this thoroughly and was shocked at what she found. Her book is a, a classic, thoroughly documented, about the whole, all the myths that uh, have been promoted by the press about the whole Palestinian issue from time immemorial. And it, it, it unmasks the, the fraud and stuff that's going on here. But, it, but the basic argument we want to understand, if the territory in question was Moabite property, how come Balak, the king of Moab, never laid claim to it, even with all the other conflicts with Balaam and, and all that business? He was the enemy of the Israelites. Yet when Israel took possession of the land he dw- and dwelt in Heshbon and its, ca- its capital and the related villages and so forth, uh, Balak never strove over them. And it's plain proof that he did not regard this area as his property, and he was the king of Moab. So why is the king of Ammon making his claims now? And in three centuries of them dwelling in the area, which is the area that we presently call Jordan, and they hadn't tried to reclaim it. Even back this, and he's referring back in the days of Moses, they didn't. So now there's this, this, I want to comment a little bit on this business of the 300 years. See, if you, if you go through the trouble of taking from the commencement of the oppression of Kushan Rishathaim, that mouthful that was in chapter three, the first, first thing in the book of Judges, unto the death of Jair that we've just encountered, that period of time can be reckoned as about 301 years. And so, we can just take it at face value, it would seem. But many scholars have a problem with this because if so, it would require 600 years between the Exodus and the temple. A little too long because they generally take the Exodus about the middle of 15th century and the temple is uh, about nominally year 1000 in round, in round terms. So it's, it's, it's too long a period of time. And I'm intrigued as I read all the theological arguments, some of them feel that the, the, the word, instead of 100 years, it should be cities, 300 cities. And there probably were about 300 cities involved, it turns out, villages, whatever. And that, that you can defend that. Except it never occurred to them, their, their concepts of the dating of Exodus may, faulty, may be faulty. The whole area of the Exodus is still one of these. There's a lot of unsolved mysteries there. Because the, the Pharaoh that oppressed the Jews was not Egyptian. Uh, Isaiah tells us he was Assyrian. So that's a, there's a whole other thing to get into there. We're doing some research, and some, I'm, I'm really startled at what I'm finding about the, the biblical background of a number of these things, so we'll be coming out with that anyway. But in any case, at this point, I, despite some of the scholastic debate about it, I see no reason not to just take it, uh, uh, take it what, what it says. And of course, uh, uh, in verse 27, we discover who the real defender of Israel is. He says, the Lord uh, be judge this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. And uh, it's interesting to understand... Jephthah's four arguments. We've gone through it verse by, I didn't want to go through it with all verse by verse because we're running out of time, but let's understand his first argument. He takes the facts of history from verses 14 to 22. You may want to put this in your notes. And you can dig that out from the, by studying the Torah. That from 14 to 22, he emphasizes the facts of history argue against him. His second argument is the land was granted by the Lord, verses 23 and 24. Verses 25, 26, they had three centuries of occupation. 
And the final thing is the theological issue. They, are, they the Ammonites, were fighting against God. And that's his final one. They hadn't declared uh, war on Ammon. Ammon was declaring war on Israel. If God gave Israel the land, they're in effect declaring the war on God. You know, it's interesting. What startles me in analyzing Jephthah's arguments, aren't they valid today? Same thing going on. Most of what you heard in the press about Israel is contrary to the history. All you have to do is read some history. Now, we summarize it for you in a, in a little thing called Betrayal of the Chosen. We've recapped it and brought it up to date to some extent in the our thing we call the Roots of War. But uh, learn the facts of history. And it's, the land grant is to Israel by God, the ruler of the universe. Say, the earth's the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yes, but there's a piece of real estate that God has set out for himself. And he's granted them tenancy under conditions of obedience. But the land does not belong to the PLO or the UN or whoever it belongs to, the creator of the universe. So when you muck around the Middle East, we're po- poking our finger in the eye of God. In this case, he had three centuries of occupation. Israel has had 3,000 years of continual occupation on that land. Again and again and again, where the Arabs at various treaties proposed things where in t- some years ago where they didn't even claim Palestine. Interestingly enough, it may shock you to go back and realize there were times they didn't even claim. There were concessions offered that the Arabs turned down, not the Jews. The history is astonishing when you go lay it out. And of course, the thing we got to recognize as we walk around in this with our foreign policy is that we've got to be careful that we're not fighting God. Israel's, Israel. Israel's God's problem, not ours. But we certainly don't want to get in his way. Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearkened not unto the words of Jephthah, which he sent them. No surprise... Then the Spirit of the Lord, whoops, there's a secret weapon. You want to talk about advanced technology? That's one you want to watch out for. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, passed over to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. In verse 30, which we're going to take up next time, because we're running out of time tonight, Jephthah's got a pretty good record here. He does well, and he does make it to the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, which we'll look at in a minute. But in verse 30, he does, in his exuberance, a foolish thing. It was very customary for generals going off to battle to make some kind of commitment. But one of the lessons we're going to get into next time, the dangers of making a vow. Any vow, not just a rash one. And he made a rash one. And it's very widely misunderstood. There's a lot of controversies about it. We'll unravel that next time. We'll table it for now. But I would like to take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. We don't have time for the whole thing. Let's pick it up about verse 32. I encourage you in your meditation uh, uh, nearby to take Hebrews 11 as a chapter. It's one of these pivotal. There are two books in the New Testament that are just monuments, Romans and Hebrews. And each has a key chapter. And the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is a pinnacle. But for starting about verse 32, the writer says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson. And guess who? Of Jephthah. His name is right there. Of David and also of Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Wow. Others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us, should not be made perfect. You see, you have a participation in this chain. Very, very exciting. He goes on. He quotes the conclusion of all this. Wherefore, seeing we also 
are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise his holy name. We didn't quite finish chapter 11. We will hit chapter 11 and 12 in the next session. Let's stand for a closing prayer. There is a key message here in a very pragmatic sense. The circumstances of birth or family are not a handicap to a person who will live by faith. Look at Jephthah. Totally handicapped, ostracized, 80 miles out of civilization in those days. And he's called upon to deliver a whole nation. And he makes it to the hall of faith. Anybody, there's, there's circumstances, background, whatever handicaps you may imagine, are exactly what the Lord is looking for. The story of Gideon, where he was... Going to go against 135,000 with 32,000. That's pretty good. God says, no, no, he whittles down to 300. Those are the kind of odds God likes to show. Because it gives him an opportunity to show himself strong. And that's true of every one of our lives. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you. We thrill at the accounts that we have before us. We thrill at the Jephthahs and the Gideons of this narrative, Father. And yet, Father, we also don't miss the real lesson that we need to learn from history, that we need to understand that our blessings are a response of our obedience. And yet, Father, we know that we are but dust. We do pray, Father, that you would, through your word, reveal to us just what it is you'd have of each of us and help us, Father, through faith to be responsive to your will in our lives, that we might be effective vessels for you to demonstrate your strength in the challenges ahead of each of us. Oh, Father, we do pray that through your Holy Spirit and through your Word, you would give us a clear perception of who you really are and what you would really have of each of us, that we each might be ever more responsive to your well in our lives, that we, that we might grow, continue to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we might be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities that you've placed before us. We just thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this body assembled. We pray, Father, that your spirit would descend on everyone and that your purpose would be accomplished in each of us as we commit ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.